The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Meditation doesn't have to be a solo practice. Meditation is more fun with friends. Looking for a way to drop in and hang out at the same time? Join us online at Omega Institute for a meditation party with self-proclaimed meditation nerds Dan Harris, host of the 10% Happier podcast, Sabene Selassie and Jeff Warren. This three-day retreat will stream live from Omega's Hudson Valley Campus, May 17th to 19th. Don't miss the party. Reserve your spot at eomega.org slash party today. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. I'm more and more convinced every time that uh, the person who commits violence, the person who is most aggressive, is the person who's suffering the most. Uh, it comes from a space of sufferings, not necessarily from a desire to ca- cause harm per se, but it's a way to express their loneliness, their exclusion, and, and, and that's one of the biggest needs of all human beings, feeling belonging. Yeah. Welcome to the Mentor TV podcast and stay curious with Patricia Falco Becali. Welcome back to another episode of COVID-19 from Crisis to Creation here on Mentory TV. I'm Patricia Falco-Bekali, your host. And today we are going to look at the impact the COVID-19 pandemic had on global crime, violence, and homicide rates. If you look at the latest statistics from the FBI, for example, in the first nine months of 2020, homicide rates are up a stunning 15% if you compare to 2019. And the UN says that most vulnerable and exposed to this kind of violence are children or young adults. But let's get a little bit more specific and look at Colombia. Now, Colombia, a Latin American country, 50 million people more or less living there, and about 26% of those are aged 15 and 29. Now, um, let me tell you one thing. Homicide rates are about 24% per 100,000 people. That's very, very high. And youth violence and crime has been an issue in Colombia for many decades, I have to say. But what can be really done about it? There are many organizations, but there's one that is standing out. It's called Mi Sangre, and it was co-founded by Catalina Koch. And I invited Catalina Koch to talk about Mi Sangre and how she really tries with this NGO to change and make peace and really get to terms with youth violence in the long term in that particular country. Catalina, so good to have you here on Mentory TV. Thank you, Patricia. It's a pleasure to be here and to share a little bit of our story. Well, um, before we get to the story, let's kind of try to paint the picture a little bit and the pain points of Colombia. And I prepared a screen share, a few screen shares I'm going to bless you with today, Catalina. And it's a quote which I would really like to share with uh, you and the entire community. And it is from Save the Children 
Colombia that is very much engaged into really trying to sort out youth violence. And here a quote is, we have lived with illegal armed groups for over 60 years in Colombia and we have an obligation to safeguard our children and youth from the scourge of war. Children should not be a witness to any form of violence and they most certainly should not be forced to play an active role and part in it. A swift concentrated response by the authorities, the civil society and community is essential to stop this war on children. Now, this kind of starts laying the land a little bit, I think, Catalina, um, and I would like you to comment on it and give us a little bit the wrap up of where we are right now when it comes to youth violence, crime and even child death due to violence in your country. Well, for many, many years, we've had an armed conflict in Colombia, perhaps the longest um, armed conflict in Latin America, uh, but also our country has been highly affected by drug trafficking, different manifestations of violence, which unfortunately have tremendous consequences in the population in general, but more specifically in children and youth who are constantly at risk. And that's why we've been working for the past uh, 13 years to activate ecosystems and to develop capacities for young people and young generations to uh, mitigate these risks and violence and also to contribute actively to peace building in Colombia. Yeah. And, you know, starting with the history, uh, you said for many, many years, youth, youth violence has been an issue also because of the organized crime. But there must be more to the story. I mean, if you look at unemployment rates, inequality rates, um, and also, you know, children just being a large part of the population, why have children always been a little bit of a target, if nothing else, in the Colombian society? Unfortunately, they're the most vulnerable uh, population uh, with very few opportunities in, in many cases, um, with their parents going uh, for work and many times they remain alone. Uh, but many times also it's not only the lack of opportunities in terms of education and in terms of uh, jobs when they get older, but it's also a lack of sense of belonging, a, a lack of... Um, like a purpose in life because of the inequalities that, that they face and the context in which they grow up. I think that's a big, big uh, need for young people, for young generations to explore and develop and to really become an active part in society. Yeah, absolutely. And inequality, before we get into, you know, children really being part of uh, really a change in that country, inequality is a huge issue. It, uh, in Colombia, I looked at the statistics, the Gini index is almost as 50, at 50. Now, the Gini index is something that has been basically used to indicate the difference between total equality, which would be zero, or inequality, which is one. And, you know, Colombia has been for years one of the most unequally um, countries, you know, when it comes to wealth spread. Why is that? What, what are the roots? Is this the cartels? Is that corruption? Is that the political system? What is the driver of inequality there? 
it's such a complex issue, which I believe is related to many of the things you, you just mentioned. Uh, but unfortunately, there's also structural, structural and historical issues that uh, facilitate concentration on wealth. Actually, the peace agreement that was recently signed between the government of Colombia and the FARC addressed many of these issues uh, for instance, the a, a land uh, reform or a land distribution approach was proposed there. Also, issues related to participation, like be opening more spaces to deepen democracy as, as inequality obviously manifests, not only in economic terms, which is absolutely important. As you said, wealth is concentrated in a very small percentage of Colombian population, but it all, also manifests in other ways, like um, cap cap uh, the capacity to participate actively in the political process, which is so important. And unfortunately, historically, these spaces has been very reduced and very limited to a small percentage of the population. Yeah, I would almost say to the elite. And again, going back to the link between violence and what you were saying earlier on, Catalina, the sense of belonging. I'm thinking about these kids, okay? The parents, if they're fortunate enough to have a job, are away all day. And youth unemployment is quite quite high uh, and poverty is incredible. I think about 27% of, due to the inequality issue, 27% uh, of the uh, Colombian population lives below the poverty line and about you know a third of that lives on $5.50 or less a day. I mean, I was, I was flabbergasted for a country that really has a lot of petroleum, had, you know, the oil bonanza at the beginning of the 2000s, and it really just really shocked me. So I can imagine that sense of belonging. If you don't have a job, if you don't have parents around, that you look maybe for a gang to join, or is there also the case of being forced into, you know, being recruited and hired by, let's say, organized crime? Well, I would say that any kid below 18 years old who joins an army is forced because basically they still don't have the capacity to make an informed decision. And if you go deeper into the issue, and, and I've had the chance to talk to many of the young people who have made that decision, um, they were in absolutely precarious situations. I remember this girl named Maria who narrated how she was uh, always hungry. Uh, their parents had very little uh, money and she, she reminds that she barely ate meat. Like she was always, always hungry. And um, when she, she was walking to school barefoot and her feet were very, very in, in pain. Mm -hmm. And she said that she, when she was walking, she saw strong men, well-nourished and with boots. That's her image that I will never forget. It was the gorillas. And that's when she decided to join. She was invited or she was tempted because of the boots, because she, she needed some, and because she was hungry. It's very, obviously it's not an informed decision. She didn't know what was expecting on the other side, but she simply left home. So I think that's a forced decision. Even if she didn't have a gun in her head, she was forced to make that decision and it certainly wasn't informed enough or she didn't have all the information and the skills to make a yeah. healthy decision. And well, I guess that situation for thousands of children and youth who make that decision either based on that 
or based on the excitement of belonging to something bigger than themselves. So they have these role models, uh, and this is especially in urban gangs, etc., where they see uh, young leaders with, I don't know, a cool motorcycle, a cool pair of shoes, and maybe jewelry, etc., that becomes their references. That's why it's also so important to build positive role models for these young kids to follow and to be able to become part of a healthier uh, community. Let me quickly interrupt the conversation to say thank you that you are here with me on the channel. If you do enjoy what I'm putting out, the in-depth kind of conversations, then why don't you subscribe and also hit the bell button so I can keep you informed with our newest releases. Thanks for that in advance and let's get back to the conversation. I think this is incredible what you say. So basically, it is not an informed and voluntary decision because the children join these kind of gangs uh, because of the conviction or what this gang stands for, but for basic needs like food and clothes and community, something that they are not provided by the parents, the families, or their own community where they live. That, that is amazing. And talking about what you've now mentioned a few times, that you reach out to these children because one day they realize, okay, all I get is perhaps the boots and the food and the community, but I'm being forced to do things that I might not necessarily agree with. Now, at that point, is it then too late for many, many kids to leave? And is the alternative either you stay or you actually will be killed? Or is it not as dramatic? It is as dramatic, especially in some of the armed groups, which unfortunately we have many manifestations of them. But for many, it's too late. And the only alternative is to escape. And they actually put their own family at risk. For others, there's, the door is a little bit more open, but they really need a clear incentive and a safe environment to go to. And here, the society plays a really important role there to be able to not only open the doors for them, but to embrace them and to ensure they have the opportunities to flourish and to thrive uh, in society. Um, so I guess the role of the family is crucial, but also schools as protective environments and um, community organizations who can also support them in their life uh, back into society. Yeah, and, and Catalina, in my research, I saw, of course, a dramatic surge in this kind of violence or hiring during the COVID-19 pandemic because even the schools or these kind of communities where children could go to in order to not be on the street, not be vulnerable and not be potentially hired by some sort of armed forces were just plainly closed. So whilst, you know, they were closed, they might have still been, you know, on the streets and vulnerable. And this is what brings me really to Misangre and your foundation because you have created something together with the artist Juanes back in 2000 as a co-founder. It is an NGO and this is really a place not only where children, youngsters can go, but where they really find something, you know, an alternative to violence and, and violent communities. Tell us a little bit about Misangre and how you personally got involved. Well, I'm a social entrepreneur and I've I've been in, in social and environmental causes since I can remember. 
And in 2009, Juanes, uh, well, actually a headhunter organization company invited me and I had the opportunity to meet Juanes and I was really moved when I talked to him and he uh, clearly expressed that his life was based in three pillars, his family, his music, and his desire to create this foundation. I saw a great opportunity there also because I was always moved by this uh, topic, but this huge challenge that we face in Colombia. I remember an anecdote that marked my life. I was really, really young, still in university in the United States, and I wanted to be close to um, my country. And I had the chance to go to this um, shanty town in, in Colombia, a comuna, we call it, where violence was very, very marked. And uh, I was really scared to go up there. And when I arrived there, a young person my age uh, looked at me directly into my eyes and he put his hand in my shoulder and told me, don't be scared, Blondie. I am as scared of going to your neighborhood as you are coming to mine. That really was an aha moment for me. Like I knew we needed or I wanted to dedicate my life to connect apparently disconnected worlds. So this invitation by Juanes with the dream of contributing to peace building was like a great opportunity for me to pursue this dream. Um, yeah. Yeah, no, but before, before you go on, so just to get it right in my own head and also maybe for the viewers. So you went into a shantytown from your own neighborhood. We're approached by this guy, quite scared. He, he read you and he said, look, I'm as scared as you going to your neighborhood. Now, why would somebody that is kind of um, exposed or used to violence be afraid to go to a potentially better neighborhood? What's the issue? Thank you for, for asking. I guess I, I said as it, it was it was normal, but of course it's not. I come from a relatively privileged uh, neighborhood. Of course, nothing wow, but uh, simply compared to the reality of more of more of most of the Colombians. So I guess he was afraid of being rejected, of not fitting in, of feeling different in his own country. And this is why it was so shocking for me. Like, I couldn't believe that a boy my age, maybe 17 years old, felt that excluded. And perhaps precisely because of that exclusion, they end up making decisions like that. Um, I'm more and more convinced every time that uh, the person who commits violence, the person who is most aggressive, is the person who's suffering the most. Uh, it comes from a space of sufferings, not necessarily from a desire to ca cause harm per se, but it's a way to express their loneliness, their exclusion, and, and, and that's one of the biggest needs of all human beings, feeling belonging. Yeah, exactly. And the desperation that you can't. And if you even try, you have that chip on the shoulder and you, 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 you feel that gap. And you mentioned earlier on, Catalina, also misconceptions and two worlds really colliding um, with misconceptions, both sides. And that seems to be a huge disconnect. And before we look at, you know, the specific programs and methodologies you use at Misangre in order to bridge that gap, tell us about this disconnect and how it's started happening? Or is that something usual if you have such high inequality uh, in a country? 
Yeah, I think it's totally linked by inequality and that inequality is also manifested geographically. Like uh, Medellin, for instance, the city that I come from, it's very, very segregated. And you can see geographically neighborhoods that live under the poverty line. And then even the neighborhoods are labeled uh, by status, they call it. So state status one and two are those who have least resources. And then there's status five and six, and it's really, really segregated. So unfortunately, Medellin has transformed already quite a bit, not enough, not, not, not enough yet, but rarely uh, we had like public spaces to share the same city. It was absolutely uh, divided. So the misconception also comes from the richer neighborhoods. We're also afraid because we associate um, these young people either with victims or victimized are in the best case scenario, we see young people as passive agents. But the truth is, and what I've learned during these years, is that there's a huge richness in these neighborhoods in many senses. Uh, there's social capital, there's uh, human capital, there's a lot of creativity, of solidarity, resilience, many, many things that we've learned. And the other way around, they see these neighborhoods as selfish, as uh, caring only for their own interest. And more and more, we're creating these spaces to reconnect and understand that we all have a lot to contribute to society. Yeah, I think you're so spot on because the misconceptions are, okay, the rich kids, they are the uh, spoiled ones that get it easy. And there might be some truth in it, depending, of course, how you bring up your kids and with what sort of values. But definitely what I've seen with underprivileged kids that really want to go and strive, they are literally, they're hungry and they have another attitude. And I think the key you just mentioned was resilience. Now, if you're exposed to violence and you have to kind of look for survival every single day from a very young age, you know, whatever hits you, you can kind of put up with a lot more than perhaps a youngster that is being cocooned, uh, you know, from top to bottom by the parents, by the nannies, by the private schooling, et cetera, et cetera. So I can totally see what you are saying, that you do find and dig and find a lot of gold in these children because they have this will to perhaps leave this kind of society or this kind of background behind them. Absolutely. And that remains, reminds me of a specific project that we run a couple of years ago with the World Economic Forum, where we invited around 600 young people from the city, from all the neighborhoods, to create solutions together for the city and a vision as well. The results were so transformative, not only for the underprivileged kids, I would say even more so for the privileged because they had the opportunity to see that force, that resilience, that creativity and really interesting projects came out and to see a shared vision of the city co-created by all, all these kids was very, very helpful. And now let, let's get into the deep of Misanga and what you actually do and offer your, your, your kind of your purpose and how you um, create, I would call, like Ashoka um, also says, like change agents. So be part of it because you are part of it and your own transformation will then um, basically change the community, but you have to be part of that change. And it starts from within and with your actions. Well, we've been working with a systemic approach in the sense that we tackle the root causes of the problem, not only the symptoms, but also we work 
not only directly with children and youth, but with all the actors who have a direct influence in these young people's experience. Um, we like to see our intervention like in levels. The first level is with very young children, maybe from eight to 14 within schools um, in very vulnerable areas, conflicted areas. Uh, we work with, chill, with teachers directly, transferring methodologies that we've developed that uses art and culture as pedagogical languages to develop social-emotional skills. Social-emotional skills like empathy, like conflict resolution, assertive communication, self-awareness, all these 21st century skills that are so important for the prevention of risks and violence, but also to help young children to become active agents of change. So it's like a journey exploring different art languages like theater, like play, like singing, drawing, painting, different expressions, exploring each of these uh, socio-emotional skills. And then they're invited to create classroom projects to solve specific problems that they envision within their institutions. So it's a very powerful experience we've been, we've been able to measure in one-year programs, how they strengthen their life skills, their social-emotional skills, and we've been able to document specific cases where we really see how they start preventing these risks, not only about uh, getting involved in violence, but other risks that are associate, associated, like uh, substance abuse, like child labor, like uh, other risks that are uh, intimately related. Then outside the school system, we work with young people from 14 to 21, a program we call Leaders of Change, where we uh, work directly with them, supporting them in a learning journey where they first discover their powers as peacemakers, we call it, as change makers. Um, they read the context through very playful methodology. They uh, talk to people in their neighborhoods. They do walks to understand what, what's happening and they identify key challenges or problems that in their community that they really care about and they feel passionate about it. That's very, very important that they learn how to put their passions and their skills in service of their own communities. So we have very powerful experiences there. Um, for instance, to prevent, we have, a, 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 I can share many, many examples, but uh, some of them who have created um, hip hop schools to prevent uh, other kids from joining gangs, or we have initiatives to tackle gender violence or gender inequality, whatever they care about in their communities. Yeah, and I, I think there what you're really hinting at is that you're giving a sense of purpose to these children. And with this purpose and that passion, they get involved and they feel powerful all of a sudden from that desperation of feeling an outcast or unable to change the system and hence not really finding an environment where, where they can stand out, develop, and maybe really touch other people with whatever happens in terms of transform, transformation uh, within this, themselves. And interesting to see that example you mentioned about the hip-hop school. We talked about it in our briefing call before, and it seems that 
one of these youngsters that has been involved in crime, I don't, I can't really remember if, if that person was also involved in drugs, then got out, got into his passion, uh, like hip hop, opened the school and really opened that as a change maker, the possibility for other kids to join. Now, um, that as an example reminds me of a conversation I had with my teenage daughter. Uh, she's going to be 16 soon. And they have this drug prevention program. And she said, you know, we had this for a while, but we had this guy, he came in, well, he zoomed in because of COVID. And he zoomed in and, you know, he was an ex-drug addict. And from this guy, it just was so much more impactful. And all of a sudden, I see somebody that can tell me what it's like to get into drugs, to use drugs, and the violence, and how he got out. And now I kind of, it, it makes it credible because he has been the change. Now he has become the agent of change. And that is so much more impactful, whoever is exposed and potentially vulnerable. That's so important what you're saying. And actually, this person that we're talking about, Candelo, is actually a key leader of the National Network of Young Peace Builder, which is the next uh, program that we're working on. And he also actually became a young global leader from the World Academic Forum. So he's a reference, he's a role model for many kids around the world. He doesn't have to carry with that baggage anymore. He's portrayed as a positive leader who's changing community, who's leading social change in, in the community. And yes, it does make a huge difference when the message comes from a person who has experienced uh, that reality. And that's part of the reason why we created this national network. We also realized that young people were so isolated. It's hard to believe, but many times They hadn't even moved away from their own neighborhood within the city. They didn't know the other side of the city. They didn't know kids from other neighborhoods. So when you're so attached to a small piece of land, well, your mind and your, you're willing to kill to defend your territory. But once you start sharing with others, dreaming with others, co-creating with others, your world totally transformed and you discover your power within. And we believe that when a young person experiences their transformative power, they will always be a change maker or a, or a peace builder, wherever they are. Even they, if they join the corporate world, wherever they are, they understand that they can transform realities and they will continue to do some from wherever they are. Yeah, and it all starts with knowledge. This is something, you know, looking beyond your own yard um, if you have the chance. And I don't want to call it provincial. It just is the way it is. You don't have the opportunity maybe to go beyond for whatever reasons you can't or you're afraid to or you are so busy defending your own territory, as you were just saying. But I think there I would like to share a screen with one of the projects, a methodology that Misangra uses. Um, it's been... It's been developed by Otto Scharmer, MIT professor, and it's called the U mythology that you started using at Misangre. And I really would like to share it in order to make it a little bit more specific for our viewers as well, Catalina, if I may, to really explain what it's, what it's all about. And that wraps up the first part of my conversation with Catalina Koch. She's the co-founder of the Misangre Foundation in Colombia in order to create peace, long-standing peace in that country. And if you do enjoy our conversations here on Mentory TV, make sure to like us, share us, and also join in by subscribing and hitting the bell button so I can keep you informed about our newest videos. 
Are you looking for help on your path to healing? I'm Lisa Campion. I'm a psychic, Reiki master, teacher, and energy healer. On my podcast, The Miracle of Healing, I'm going to help you on your healing path. Listen to conversations with leading teachers in energy medicine, quantum healing, and people who have recovered from loss and illness. Whether it's to take care of your own healing or to help other people, this is the podcast for you right here on mindbodyspirit.fm.